Section 22 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Monday, March 5, 1906. Mrs. Clemens' warning to Mr. Clemens when he attends the Cleveland reception at the White House describes the Paris house in which they lived in 1893, also room in Villa Viviani, also dining-room in house at Riverdale. Tells how Mr. Clemens was dusted off after the various dinners and the card system of signals. Letter from Mr. Gilder regarding Mr. Cleveland's sixty-ninth birthday. Mason. I was always heedless. I was born heedless, and therefore I was constantly and quite unconsciously committing breaches of the minor proprieties, which brought upon me humiliations, which ought to have humiliated me, but didn't, because I didn't know anything had happened. But Livy knew, and so the humiliations fell to her share, poor child, who had not earned them, and did not deserve them. She always said I was the most difficult child she had. She was very sensitive about me. It distressed her to see me do heedless things which could bring me under criticism, and so she was always watchful and alert to protect me from the kind of transgressions which I have been speaking of. When I was leaving Hartford for Washington upon the occasion referred to, she said, I have written a small warning and put it in a pocket of your dress vest. When you are dressing to go to the author's reception at the White House, you will naturally put your fingers in your vest pockets, according to your custom, and you will find that little note there. Read it carefully and do as it tells you. I cannot be with you, and so I delegate my sentry duties to this little note. If I should give you the warning by word of mouth now, it would pass from your head and be forgotten in a few minutes. It was President Cleveland's first term. I had never seen his wife, the young, the beautiful, the good-hearted, the sympathetic, the fascinating. Sure enough, just as I had finished dressing to go to the White House, I found that little note which I had long ago forgotten. It was a grave little note, a serious little note, like its writer, but it made me laugh. Livy's gentle gravities often produced that effect upon me, where the expert humorist's best joke would have failed, for I do not laugh easily. When we reached the White House, and I was shaking hands with the President, he started to say something, but I interrupted him and said, If Your Excellency will excuse me, I will come back in a moment, but now I have a very important matter to attend to, and it must be attended to at once. I turned to Mrs. Cleveland, the young, the beautiful, 
the fascinating, and gave her my card, on which I had written, He did not, and I asked her to sign her name below those words. She said, He did not? He did not what? Oh, I said, never mind. We cannot stop to discuss that now. This is urgent. Won't you please sign your name? I handed her a fountain pen. Why, she said, I cannot commit myself in that way. Who is it that didn't? And what is it that he didn't? Oh, I said, time is flying, flying, flying. Won't you take me out of my distress and sign your name to it? It's all right. I give you my word it's all right. She looked nonplussed. But hesitatingly and mechanically she took the pen and said, I will sign it. I will take the risk. But you must tell me all about it right afterward, so that you can be arrested before you get out of the house, in case there should be anything criminal about it. Then she signed, and I handed her Mrs. Clemens' note, which was very brief, very simple, and to the point. It said, Don't wear your arctics in the White House. It made her shout, and at my request she summoned a messenger, and we sent that card at once to the mail on its way to Mrs. Clemens in Hartford. Picture of note, he did not, Francis F. Cleveland. Mr. Samuel L. Clemens, Hartford, Connecticut. During 1893 and 94 we were living in Paris, the first half of the time at the Hotel Brighton in the Rue de Rivoli, the other half in a charming mansion in the Rue de l'Université, on the other side of the Seine, which, by good luck, we had gotten hold of through another man's ill luck. This was Pomeroy, the artist. Illness in his family had made it necessary for him to go to the Riviera. He was paying $3,600 a year for the house, but allowed us to have it at 2600 It was a lovely house, large, rambling, quaint, charmingly furnished and decorated, built upon no particular plan, delightfully rambling, uncertain, and full of surprises. You were always getting lost in it, and finding nooks and corners, and rooms which you didn't know were there, and whose presence you had not suspected before. It was built by a rich French artist, and he had also furnished it and decorated it himself. The studio was coziness itself. We used it as a drawing-room, sitting-room, living-room, dancing-room, we used it for everything. We couldn't get enough of it. It is odd that it should have been so cozy, for it was forty feet long, forty feet high, and thirty feet wide, with a vast fireplace on each side in the middle, and 
a musician's gallery at one end. But we had, before this, found out that, under the proper conditions, spaciousness and coziness do go together most affectionately and congruously. We had found it out a year or two earlier, when we were living in the Via Viviani, three miles outside the walls of Florence. That house had a room in it which was forty feet square and forty feet high, and at first we couldn't endure it. We called it the Mammoth Cave. We called it the Skating Rink. We called it the Great Sahara. We called it all sorts of names intended to convey our disrespect. We had to pass through it to get from one end of the house to the other, but we passed straight through and did not loiter, and yet before long, and without our knowing how it happened, we found ourselves infesting that vast place day and night, and preferring it to any other part of the house. Four or five years ago, when we took a house on the banks of the Hudson at Riverdale, we drifted from room to room on our tour of inspection, always with a growing doubt as to whether we wanted that house or not. But at last, when we arrived in a dining-room that was sixty feet long, thirty feet wide, and had two great fireplaces in it, that settled it. But I have wondered what I was proposing to talk about was quite another matter to it. In that pleasant Paris house Mrs. Clemens gathered little dinner companies together once or twice a week, and it goes without saying that in these circumstances my defects had a large chance for display. Always, always without fail, as soon as the guests were out of the house I saw that I had been miscarrying again. Mrs. Clemens explained to me the various things which I had been doing, and which should have been left undone. The children had a name for this performance. They called it dusting off Papa. At last I had an inspiration. It is astonishing that it had not occurred to me earlier. I said, why, Livy, you know that dusting me off after these dinners is not the wise way. You could dust me off after every dinner for a year, and I should always be just as competent to do the forbidden thing at each succeeding dinner as if you had not said a word, because in the meantime I have forgotten all these instructions. I think the correct way is for you to dust me off immediately before the guests arrive, and then I can keep some of it in my head, and things will go better. She recognized that that was wisdom, and that it was a very good idea. Then we set to work to arrange a system of signals to be delivered by her to me during dinner, 
signals which would indicate definitely which particular crime I was now engaged in so that I could change to another. The children got a screen arranged so that they could be behind it during the dinner and listen for the signals and entertain themselves with them. The system of signals was very simple, but it was very effective. If Mrs. Clemens happened to be so busy at any time talking with her elbow neighbor that she overlooked something that I was doing, she was sure to get a low-voiced hint from behind that screen in these words, blue card, mama, or red card, mama, green card, mama, so that I was under double and triple guard. What the mother didn't notice, the children detected for her. As I say, the signals were quite simple, but very effective. At a hint from behind the screen, Livy would look down the table and say in a voice full of interest, if not of counterfeited apprehension, what did you do with the blue card that was on the dressing table? That was enough. I knew what was happening, that I was talking the lady on my right to death, and never paying any attention to the one on my left. The blue card meant, let the lady on your right have a reprieve, destroy the one on your left. So, I would at once go to talking vigorously to the lady on my left. It wouldn't be long till there would be another hint, followed by a remark from Mrs. Clemens, which had in it an apparently casual reference to a red card, which meant, oh, are you going to sit there all evening and never say anything? Do wake up and talk. So I woke up and drowned the table with talk. We had a number of cards, of different colors, each meaning a definite thing, each calling attention to some crime or other in my common list, and that system was exceedingly useful. It was entirely successful. It was like Buck Fanshaw's riot. It broke up the riot before it got a chance to begin. It headed off crime after crime all through the dinner, and I always came out at the end successful, triumphant, with large praises owing to me, and I got them on the spot. It is a far call back over the accumulation of years to that night in the White House when Mrs. Clemens signed the card. Many things have happened since then. The Cleveland family have been born since then. Ruth, the firstborn, whom I never knew, but with whom I corresponded when she was a baby, lived only a few years. Today comes this letter, and it brings back the Clevelands, and the past, and my lost little correspondent. March 3, 1906. Editorial Department, The Century Company, Union Square, New York. My dear Mr. Clemens, 
President Finley and I are collecting letters to ex-President Cleveland from his friends, appropriate to his sixty-ninth birthday. If the plan appeals to you, will you kindly send a sealed greeting under cover to me at the above address, and I will send it and the other letters south to him in time for him to get them all together on the 18th of the present month. Yours sincerely, R. W. Gilder. Mr. Samuel L. Clemens. When the little Ruth was about a year or a year and a half old, Mason, an old and valued friend of mine, was consul general at Frankfurt on the Main. I had known him well in 1867, 68, and 69, in America, and I and mine had spent a good deal of time with him and his family in Frankfurt in 1892-93. He was a thoroughly competent, diligent, and conscientious official. Indeed, he possessed these qualities in so large a degree that among American consuls he might fairly be said to be monumental for at that time our consular service was largely, and I think I may say mainly, in the hands of ignorant, vulgar, and incapable men who had been political healers in America, and had been taken care of by transference to consulates, where they could be supported at the government's expense instead of being transferred to the poorhouse, which would have been cheaper and more patriotic. Mason, in 78, had been consul-general in Frankfurt several years, four, I think. He had come from Marseille with a great record. He had been consul there during thirteen years, and one part of his record was heroic. There had been a desolating cholera epidemic, and Mason was the only representative of any foreign country who stayed at his post and saw it through, and during that time he not only represented his own country, but he represented all the other countries in Christendom, and did their work, and did it well, and was praised for it in words of no uncertain sound. This great record of Mason's had saved him from official decapitation straight along while Republican presidents occupied the chair, but now it was occupied by a Democrat. Mr. Cleveland was not seated in it. He was not yet inaugurated. Before he was deluged with applications from Democratic politicians desiring the appointment of a thousand or so politically useful Democrats to Mason's place. A year or two later Mason wrote me and asked me if I couldn't do something to save him from destruction. End of section 22, Monday, March 5th, 1906.